0: Hello Future Foodcast food enthusiasts. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Future Foodcast where we talk to thought leaders in the food industry and today we have a huge thought leader in the food industry. His name is Jeff Grog and he's the managing director of JPG Resources and also the president of Snackworks. Jeff, thanks for being on our podcast.
1: Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it.
0: So we're really excited to unpack some of the vast experience that you've had in the food industry. Can you give us a little bit of history, of where you've been that has brought you to where you are right now?
1: Sure. Yeah. I started my career in food science. I got my degree at Purdue university, went to Kellogg's. And then after some time at Kellogg's, Kellogg bought Kashi and I moved over to Kashi, a little more fast moving, innovative business. So that was fun. That grew exponentially during, uh, the eight years I worked on that business. And then I transferred, or I left and went into, uh, starting JPG resources and a more entrepreneurial path. So, uh, since then, have done a few different things, and it's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, you have now seen several different areas where your experience can be used within the food industry. Let's talk about a few of those. JPG Industries... It's kind of that overarching business, and you're a bit of a consultancy, is that right? To help food manufacturers and
1: right at, at JPG, we help companies of all sizes build new businesses, and so we have 60 people working from the very front end in strategy and marketing to. Product design and commercialization, and then operations, supply chain management, and all of that. And then we also do some work on diligence and other financial services uh, and support as well. So, a very, a pretty diversified team at this point.
0: You have your hands at a lot of things there. And I was doing a little reconnaissance work. I know that you spoke just recently at the Winter Fancy Food Show, and you were talking about innovation in the face of uncertainty i'd like for you to share with this audience a couple of the key messages that you had you know talking about the culture of innovation that a company needs to have i think that's a lot of what you do at jpg right
1: it is you know i mean we do a lot of the work of innovation but we also help companies sometimes reframe or recraft their innovation process and culture to be more effective and um at the fancy food show you know obviously the supply chains are still a mess there's all sorts of dis- disruption, inflation, labor issues, all that's still going on. Um, But, you know, fundamentally leading into addressing how do we innovate in the face of all that? Well, it helps if we have a good innovation platform and culture in good times. And so, yeah, talking, you know, we talked about things like trust and and establishing a, a culture of openness where anybody can bring things forward and be heard and and contribute to innovative ideas. And, and, you know, then you're bringing it down to a little bit more of like how you operate today. If you have trust, you know, diverse inputs and you have your whole team engaged and you're looking at, you know, really focused on how do you get to market through the whole process, you know, then complementing that with in today's times, also focusing on simplicity and other other uh, factors that enable you to be to still innovate during times of disruption.
0: Okay. So that all speaks to what you've learned about really how to set the businesses up. So when you're working with new businesses that are emerging, you're trying to help them be on good footing from the very beginning and have a good culture and structure and attitude about what they're doing moving forward.
1: Right. I mean, for young companies... A lot of times the challenge is they just don't know what they don't know. And they also struggle with sometimes the relationships of their partners around them. You know, a, a brand, a young brand talking to a contract manufacturer, they don't speak the same language. They don't see the world in the same way. So establishing a culture with your partners can also be a challenge. So big companies have, you know, all the weights and the, the process and all the other things, politics, they come into play and young brands have, they have to have all those same relationships and same skills built up, but it it comes at it from a different way.
0: Great. Well, it seems like, you know, that's definitely a service that's needed and hopefully companies realize they need that. To your point, sometimes they don't know what they don't know and it's hard to Mm -hmm. help them understand that they could really establish themselves and grow a lot faster with the experience of you and your team to help them identify maybe some of those niche markets where they can be the most successful. I think um, you had mentioned before about You know, when companies try to serve too broad of an audience, sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle.
1: Yeah, it's helpful for most brands to be really targeted and to know that consumer icon, you know, who is it exactly we're trying to serve? Who is the embodiment of the target? And um, you know, I used to work with a great CEO of a growing company called Vans. And you know, we he would always say target narrow to catch wide. And I think that really is, you know, if you want to hit those concentric circles, you got to hit the middle first. And then you can ripple out. But when you're missed and you're over here, instead of hitting the middle, then you don't hit anybody and it doesn't really work for anyone. So we do like to see brands that have a real focus and deliver real value to somebody in particular.
0: That's really good advice. And I think we have a lot of entrepreneurs in the food space that listen to our podcast and others who are interested to figure out, you know, how do you look at what's going on in food and and where the trends are like how do you decide where to go like what analytics do you recommend companies consider, how do you counsel them?
1: Yeah, I mean, analytics are really hard to come by for young companies. It's, uh, you know, buying the data can be really expensive. And, you know, most most companies that come into food and beverage come in from an angle of their own experience and their own, you know, your own experience is valid. You know, your own experience that, hey, I can't find gluten-free products that my kids love and that will take care of them. And so, you know, Gail Becker invented cauliflower Power Pizza. Uh, you know, that was from her as a mother taking care of her family and all of a sudden, it's a hundred million dollar business. You know, I think there's so many, the innovation tends to in food because we all eat, many of us cook, you know, it, it comes from a more organic place a lot of times, but then as you get going Chasing that idea, you need to be able to validate it. You need to be able to. You do have to invest in buying a little data. You do have to, you know, figure out from your stores can you, what information can you get from them. So yeah, creating any any data points that you can, and then weaving that in with the anecdotal real life experience uh, is a is kind of where small brands have to live.
0: And from your talk about the innovation in the face of uncertainty at the food show, you were talking about how. Really, it's equally important to celebrate the wins that win, you know, when we can realize, oh, that was a good move, as well as celebrating the wins that don't win. In other words, when you're, it's not going to make it and you decide, we we'll use a fishing analogy, you know, to, to cut the bait. I mean, you're yeah. not going to be able to bring that fish in. So just cut the line and let the bait go and move on to the next thing. I think that's really sage advice.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest things to do is kill a project. And whether it's at Kellogg's or whether it's at a startup, it's always difficult. And the more you've worked on it, and the harder you've worked on it, and the closer you are to the finish line, it's harder to, to say, I'm not going to do this. And so, you know, I mean, people talk about celebrating failure, and I think that's a little bit of an odd concept or maybe a misnomer. Uh, the failure you need to learn from, whether celebrating is a different kind of thing, maybe the celebrating the good effort or the good decision to kill the project you might say well that project failed so how you know how did you get there why did it fail but ultimately you celebrate the idea that you had the the nerve to cut it and and that you had the nerve to make the tough call or that you did great work along the way but then you decided as you got more information that the timing was wrong or or you just couldn't get there. So I think, yeah, I was trying to make the point of there, even in failure, even when we make tough decisions, there are usually good things to celebrate Um, because celebrating failure, I think, especially for entrepreneurs where you don't get too many bites at the apple, uh, it's a tough concept, but there are still other ways to celebrate, you know, learning and growing along the way.
0: Excellent point. And I think that you, uh, for, for the record too, I really like cauliflower pizza, so I'm so glad that Good. she really felt like she needed to follow her passion, you know, her, I guess, innovation. For yeah, like she effectively
1: created a category. I mean, now there are other people doing it. And, you know, that's when, you know, that's the kind of innovation that's really exciting uh, when people really impact not only a few consumers, but then you create a whole a new Uh, experience in the store and a new opportunity for consumers so it's fun to be a part of things like that
0: well and speaking of innovation you saw that there was a lot going on in the snack space we're gonna take a look at you know some of the natural food snacks that are out there it's a huge trend that's going on but there was a big void in that market that you saw that you could fill can you tell us a little bit about what you've developed
1: yeah, so at Snackworks, we we created Snackworks because at JPG we we're having a hard time finding the places for our brands to go, and so we felt like there was this small to mid-scale gap in in high-quality um, innovation baking, and so when we put Snackworks together, you know, we've tried to maintain very high standards of quality and food safety so that any company of any size can feel comfortable working there. And then also, you know, have a high flexibility and some unique capabilities. Interesting few years trying to bring all that together, but that's uh, where we want to live at at that space.
0: Yeah. Now within that That snack works. I mean, you've seen some trends that are going on there too, within, I I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of the natural food or, or, or more clean food, eating holistic space. You can give it a better word than I can probably, but some of the trends that are going on there, as far as what the consumers are wanting right now, what are you seeing out there?
1: yeah you know we can and the market just keeps fragmenting and fragmenting everybody wants exactly what they want and you know now you know in the last 10 years 20 years there's this ever more ability to target your that consumer or to find exactly what you want online and so forth so we do continue to see a lot of these you know what used to be considered a niche that was too small to go chase. Those are becoming sizable now. Uh, so we do a lot of work with grain free. Uh, we do work with sprouted products. We do work with dehydration instead of baking. So again, you know, trying to meet consumer, meet the brands that are serving the consumers. Uh, we just opened an allergen free room. So on the one room we run all kinds of allergens and all kinds of nuts because it's grain free. Then we have an allergen free baking room and we have a dehydration room. But that's all stuff that's kind of hard to come by. In the industry, and and so, but that's where the growth is, and and so instead of trying to negotiate with everybody to try and get it done, we we said, well, we're going to build it at Snackworks and um, get at the market that way.
0: And I'm sure there are a lot of emerging brands that are really happy that you've done that because you're taking the onus of all the regulations and. Getting all the certifications, which is not a small task, right. <laughs> <laughs> to get all of that in line, so that a brand can feel comfortable contracting with you for the manufacturing. But you right. also talked about the consumers, as far as wanting to get what they want, where they want it, and how they want it, and and they're willing to pay for that.
1: Yeah, it's one of the interesting trends, and it's been developing a little while. You know, Suja a few years back. You know, they were charging ten or twelve bucks for a bottle of juice, but you know, and then you. You see Dirty Lemon sort of built off of that and is, you know, premium uh, cleansing product, you put a juice-based product. You see Gem that's doing, you know, vitamin delivery in little cubes. Uh, so it's bringing food and real, real nutrition in a different package and you're taking a little food bite instead of a pill and that's, you know, that's, they're charging an appropriate price for that. So yeah, we continue to see, you know, brands like Magic Spoon that have taken cereal where all the cereal companies would tell you forever there's a this hard price cap that you just can't break through and then they double it and then they're, you know, selling 40 million bucks or whatever. When it, again, it comes down to if you can target the right people and hit them with really exactly what they want, price becomes less sensitive.
0: And are you seeing a change in who these people are that are starting companies and, and targeting these products? is there a demographic shift or what's going on out there? Are they young? Are they old or what's happening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a trend building prior to COVID that there was more late life entrepreneurs, people that had maybe even taken early retirement or just said, you know, this corporate thing's not for me anymore or whatever. And so we were seeing more people 40, 50, even, even older, like start businesses. But then, you know, COVID accelerated that with all the disruption. And, you know, I think for one, people, lost jobs and there was there was some bleeding in the industry that way or in, in not in necessarily food and bath but in general and so people had time on their hands to think about their what they wanted to do. And then, you know, just with the lockdowns and everything else, people became more introspective. Folks, you know, the great resignation, uh, that is also people doing more, you know, pursuing their passion a little bit more and deciding, you know, maybe I can trade some stability or trade some salary for something I'd really want to do. So it's definitely a trend toward more late life entrepreneurs entering the space. And honestly, there's not a huge pool of data, but statistically, they do very well. Uh, That life experience is uh, generally helpful to them um, in in launching a brand. That's an
0: interesting perspective because, you know, just thinking about the later life entrepreneurs and maybe bringing to bear their life experience, whereas a younger person just wouldn't have had really the the failures or the decisions that needed to be made along the way that maybe uh, an older person had in their career already and, and could more easily move on from maybe that that project that was a little bit of a pet project they realized weren't going to make it, or they can easily see, I really want to put my resources here and go
1: for it. Yeah, yeah, that life experience is invaluable and, and can't be gained any other way. You can't shortcut that. So I think that definitely is an impact. You know, some of them also, frankly, they're just more financially capable of getting off to a good start, and and that is helpful too. So there's a lot of different ways um, to think about it, but all of that I think comes into the impact of of later life entrepreneurs being uh, quite successful
0: very interesting and and the older i get the more important that life experience yeah. <laughs> is i don't know if i can yeah. speak for you but talking about financing that is a reality of somebody who's already had a career and maybe has some savings to pull from because starting up a company is not, is not inexpensive. And especially when you're trying to establish a brand, but that's another niche that you saw an opportunity for. What did you do over there?
1: Yeah. I mean, running a brand is certainly not for the faint of heart. And, um, you know, that's another area that as we grow, as we've grown over the years and interacted with the space a lot, we ended up we also felt like there was a gap in funding for early stage companies, so we partnered with uh, our friend Andrew Reynolds and created a, an early stage seed and Series A fund called RCB Frontline. So not only do we bring funding to early stage companies, you know, we're usually writing checks two hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, but we're you know because of our depth of experience and because of our operational backgrounds. Andrew has run a company before; he's been an investor for quite a while, and, and you know we have a, a loads of operational experience experience so uh, we felt like that was a gap that a there's just not a lot of sophisticated money early in the in the fundraising life cycle and b you know there was we felt like we could bring intelligence and other added value as well because you know otherwise most of the time you're You know, you're funding it yourself and then you're doing sort of friends and family, angels, and there's just not a lot of value add there. And in, in fact, a lot of times there's a lot of hassle and headache. So, you know, we felt like we could play in that early stage and add some value through the fund.
0: I would agree just because you're bringing not only the money to the table, which other people could do that piece, but you're bringing your perspective and experience and your knowledge of what's going on in the future where you could really maybe help them target and evaluate which direction to head and and how to best spend the money. Right.
1: Right. And, you know, maybe one of the most important things we bring is our network. Uh, We're very well connected across the space. So when they're, when they have a question about sales, we can get somebody to answer that when they have a question about food service or, you know, so it doesn't, it's not just within our team, but across our network that we can bring value to them through the connectivity that is so important to running a business. And even sometimes connecting them with other founders for mentoring Or just, you know, I'll say one of the important things for founders is sometimes just to know they're not alone. There are other people going through the struggle. We found that to be important for founders over the years.
0: Yeah, a little bit of a founder mastermind idea where this shared common experience you get to just get validated that you're not the only one, right? That I think that's really valuable. Well, what do you see coming on the horizon moving forward as far as any kind of trends, innovation, technology? You have a technology background. What's happening out there?
1: Yeah, you know, the market continues to evolve all the time and sometimes things catch us off guard. But right now, you know, the macro trends are playing out, you know, obviously plant based. But then, you know, you look a little deeper and you see that there's actually more growth or not more growth, but a lot also happening in, well, if you're going to eat plant based, do you really need meat mimics that are mostly soy or other things? Or do you really just want to eat more vegetables and and more fruits? And, you know, there's a movement to, well, if we're going to be vegetarian, why don't we just eat vegetarian? to eat vegetables. And, you know, and that's where there's probably more real health uh, in moving that way. Eating more vegetables is maybe the most true and ever present, uh, you know, fact of, of nutrition is if you eat more vegetables, you're going to be healthier. Uh, you know, that's that's probably the most well-established tenant in nutrition. You know, so we see that, we see continued snackification of everything, you know, everything in small portable uh, is great, you know, small portable units. We see that there's continuation of, you know, new foods, new sources coming in, you know, mushrooms being really interesting and used in a lot of ways. Just in the last week, a category that was a little bit left for dead is revitalizing is, you know, insect farming and creating protein and and um, food sources from insects, whether that may be on the feed side for animal feed or whether it's um, directly into brands, but we're seeing that a little renaissance there, some significant funding. You know, just back again to price that if you hit it right, you can price it up. So we're a number of those sort of things on our radar as trends that we're paying attention to, and then obviously. All the technology for delivery systems and last mile and GoPuff you can order and have it in a couple hours at your house. It's not even like tomorrow. Now it's uh, you know immediately. So all those things we, we find interesting and see continuing driving continuing evolution.
0: Out of all of the trends and things that you see coming in the future, which there were several really interesting topics. Of course, I'm gonna focus on the insects. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> The only time I've heard about insects for protein is when I've watched maybe one of those survival shows where yeah. people are having to eat that and everybody kind of cringes, but it's a real thing.
1: It is a real thing. And, you know, a few years ago, six, seven years ago, it was crickets. And then it turned out, well, all the promise of crickets was a little bit misfocused, maybe, or or uh, mis- uh communicated. It just wasn't as efficient as, as everybody wanted it to be. You know, and ultimately you ended up with a product that was four times as expensive as, as beef or dairy or other common protein sources. And that didn't taste that great and didn't deliver a full protein and was, you know, just, and people don't like this. You got to get people over a big hurdle to want that. And, you know, I think now in the last few years, there's been a little bit of retrenching, a little bit of focus on different insects, like black soldier flies and others where there is more efficiency and there is more scalability and there's a little more focus on animal feed and other entry points where you can get scale and and learn um where you don't have to worry about the ick factor because the cow doesn't care uh what's in its feed or or the pig or whatever so there's an evolution there i mean people eat insects all the time it's mostly u.s and europe that we think it's weird but you know, so so there is also a lot of history of use there, um, as far as you know, bringing it to scale and making it mainstream. And there's still a lot to be done in terms of technology, uh, but I think the approach now is a little more savvy than a few years ago.
0: And I like that. The ick factor. That's exactly that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it is. A highly technical term. Thanks, Jeff. I, for that. Exactly. That's, <laughs> I live
1: in the technical, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> highly technical term. Well, and moving forward with the, with the innovation, I think it's going to continue, don't you, with uh, technology? I know blockchain's kind of on the cutting edge as far as sourcing, as well as where the food ends up. Uh, are you seeing any trend going on there?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for one, upcycling is a big trend that I, I should mentioned before, that's finally gaining some strength because for one, there's a lot of people doing it and a trend doesn't happen from one company doing it or one entrepreneur. It takes multiples and there's starting to be a little more infrastructure and more thought about how we do upcycling appropriately with more value. There's a need to bring technology solutions across the food spectrum. And I apologize, I'm not I think I just lost your questions. We may need to revisit a little bit.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll, I'll restate it, but I would like for you, for because upcycling is a fairly new term, I would say. I mean, mm-hmm. I only heard about it more recently. It's not, if you could explain that first, and then uh, we were talking about just the trends in technology that might be moving forward where we talked and i asked a little bit about blockchain but blockchain, i'd like for you yes. to define upcycling first for our general sure. audience who may not be familiar it's really right. novel well jeff you, you had a number of innovation future trends that are going on and in especially in the technology space you mentioned about you know delivery systems and i know blockchain is really kind of cutting edge on the sourcing side too aren't you what are you seeing
1: Yeah. So just to talk blockchain for a minute, it's another one of those things that we always see the trend takes longer to to arrive than we think, you know, and blockchain is great technology and it's amazing. But part of the problem is with blockchain is there's so many links in the chain for food. Not only there's so many links in the chain, but those links are owned by different entities. So tying it all together for blockchain to really work as promised it is a little bit out there yet because it's just not endemic uh, yet. But it's it's being worked on. There's progress being made. But I think before that's it's going to be a little bit before that's ubiquitous. You know, the other big area we see technology being applied is in upcycling. It's such a big movement to reduce food waste. We've probably all heard the term that food waste is 40% of the food produced gets wasted. Often, you know, some at the consumer end, some along the way. And upcycling is simply taking what might be food waste and then creating something more value out of it so there's a brand called seconds for example in new york that is taking i believe it's carrots and taking you know when they're when they're juicing carrots you can take the mass that's left over and use that to make a carrot cracker um so that type of thing in upcycling taking beer spent grains and making it into an ingredient that could be used in bread or pasta for example so there's a lot of work being done in upcycling And there's a lot of opportunity in upcycling. And now we're seeing a groundswell of, you know, five, six, eight years ago, it was being done in very small scale, very inefficient ways. And there is now enough work being done to make that efficient and, and bring it closer to market reality.
0: Wow. Interesting. And I think that consumers are really pushing a lot of that because there's such a huge sustainability movement going on across the food industry. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. And you know, everybody talks sustainability and consumers say they want to buy sustainability and they do. And also they don't want to have to do anything, you know? So if sustainability involves them taking the package back to the store for recycling, or has to be, you know, composted in a very specific way, the the, the consumer uptake of that is actually quite low where, you know, things like upcycling, if you make a cracker out of upcycled ingredients, you've done all the work. The consumer can just buy it and feel good about it. And, you know, for better or for worse, that's the reality of of the market is that uh, everybody wants the sustainability piece, but the, you know, they want it with low engagement. Uh, So how, however we can continue to advance the industry in packaging technologies and upcycling and blockchain that can reduce waste and and so forth, those things are all, all in the pipeline and need to come through.
0: Absolutely. And an interesting point, circling back with the whole sustainability that, Consumers don't want to put a lot of effort in. They want to support the movement, but not a lot of effort. That comes back to your earlier point about having you know giving consumers what they want when they want it in the way they want it i think that definitely applies in this area they'll buy that cracker made from the pulp essentially of the carrots that are juiced and if you've ever juiced which i have there is a lot there is a lot left over no matter how you do that there just is and there i think there's a great opportunity there but but the consumers they'll they'll participate with their purchasing dollars but not necessarily with their time and effort is what i'm hearing
1: yeah i mean it's it's the same thing as as forever. I, I, I mean. You know, I remember back in my Kellogg days. You know, we—if you ask the consumer to do one extra step in prep, they—they—they they don't want to do it. You know, I mean, Rice Krispies treats. When we launched that product as as an actual item instead of a side of the box recipe, you know, my thought was nobody's going to buy this. It's so easy to make Rice Krispies treats, and everybody wanted it. We couldn't make them fast enough. Well, I mean, so there's on the one hand, you know, never underestimate the laziness of the consumer, <laughs> but but I mean on the more positive spin is, I mean, really people want it the, the easiest, most convenient way. And we should all know that we are, we are all consumers. That's how we want life. So the more we can bring them a, a turnkey complete solution that they can just support by purchasing is, you know, I mean, that's, that's where the big wins tend to be.
0: Well, your point is well taken. I I still don't think I'm going to change my introduction to the food cast to say, and welcome you lazy food enthusiasts to the Future Foodcast. But to your point, just giving consumers what they want, the way they want it and how they want it is really what I'm hearing. And Jeff, is there anything else you think our audience might be interested in? We've we've had a pretty broad discussion today, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience?
1: I mean, not particularly. I'm just always happy to be a part of this industry. It's such a uh, nice nice group of people. People give and support each other all the time. We're happy to be a part of it and you know, enjoy doing the education. And, and I really appreciate you having me on the show today.
0: Well, we really appreciate you being on the show and with your broad wealth of knowledge and experience in the food industry and the different areas, the different verticals where you've seen a need and you've acted to fill it. We really I know as a global community, really appreciate that. And thank you so much for being with us, Jeff.
1: Thank you, Pam. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.